0: Welcome to episode number five of our Fintorn Barrel. Today we've got John Talbot here and he's joined by his dog Molly who's got very curly black hair and Alex beside him and I'm recording from Glasgow Well, they're both in Fintorn and I'm very envious right now because they both have glasses of wine and I'm stuck with my buttermint tea here. <laughs> Out of your Batman mug. And they're on a, what do you say? Out of your Batman mug. Yeah, I'm drinking out of my Batman mug, which makes me happier. And they're both on a very lovely round couch in John's round barrel house. So, John, can you tell us a bit about yourself and the kind of things that you get up to? Sure. Um,
1: Well, let's see. I, I was born in England and I grew up in America. And when I was and I came to visit Findhorn in 1978, the first time, and thought, right, I'm coming back. Uh, went home to pack up my stuff, but thought I better find out about getting a visa. And um, being a good little finthorn acolyte, I was meditating and, um, you know, asking about being led to the right place. And and uh, I got this sense that I should call the British embassy and find out how hard it was going to be to get a visa, to come back. Because my parents were both American, even though I was born in England. I thought I was American, and you know, I left when I was a year old. Anyway, um, when I called the embassy, then I had this chat with the lady there, and she said, "No, no, you, you know, Americans have to be on a tourist visa, and it takes a so long. It's very complicated, difficult." And at the end of the conversation, about you know, fifteen minutes into it, I asked her, "Oh, it doesn't matter that I've got an English birth certificate. Oh, well, how did you get that?" She said. Oh, well, I was born there, but my parents, (laughs) they're they're Americans, and they were just visiting, and I was a a year old when I left. So, why didn't you say so? The Queen considers you a subject. And I'm like, (laughs) she does? (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) it it was kind of one of those moments where you think, wow, there's a bit of a plan here. Um, Because my father was not supposed to be sent over to England. He was supposed to be sent to Korea to fight in the Korean War. But at the very last minute, they changed his orders and said, no, we're going to send you to England. Um, and and so my mother could come with him at government expense. And they had this sort of two-year honeymoon in Europe. They had me and then went back to the States. And But it gave me citizenship. So I thought, wow, I wanted to come back and live at Finnhorn." That's a bit of a sign <laughs> that maybe, maybe it's the right move. So that was 1978. And I kind of never really looked back. And... Um, and right, when I first came, there was uh, quite a big financial crisis, which might sound a bit familiar, given that we're mm-hmm. having quite it a big financial a crisis at the moment. Um, and everybody was kind of leaving and, uh, and asking me, why was I coming? You know, it's place is falling apart, it's bankrupt, blah, blah, blah. But it was also right around the time David Spangler was uh, talking about building planetary villages. Uh, the idea of, of, a, of a kind of uh, a place grounded in in its local ecology, as a village often is, uh, but with a planetary consciousness and awareness of this new way of seeing life that that uh, the community kind of was um, pioneering back in the 70s, 60s and 70s. And I got quite excited about the idea and everybody else did, too, uh, because it sort of gave us a real reason to keep going. Um Namely, to sort of uh, to express in the built environment the whole idea of co-creation and cooperation with nature, which, of course, is one of our fundamental things uh, that the community was founded on. Um, But when you looked at how we were actually living, cheek by jowl, as Peter would say, um, in these tin boxes in the north of Scotland all through winter, it wasn't exactly living in harmony with nature. I mean, it was it was unhealthy, it was freezing, it was, um, they were moldy in the wintertime, you know. So how do we create the built environment in this way that co-creates with nature and that um, meets our human needs, but also enhances and um, yeah co-creates um, with the natural world. So that was a big idea. And it was the thing that really launched us into Buying the caravan park, so we had to. We were renting it before then, you know, very much a transient uh, community, and that um, inspiration of like, oh, we could express co-creation with nature in the built environment, which 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 led us to launch the caravan park appeal, uh, which started in the end of eighty two, and then all through eighty three and eighty four, we raised the nearly four hundred thousand pounds to um, to buy the caravan park and to be able to build the eco-village, as it's now called. Um, and that, I realized, was the reason why I was here. That my I was trained as an engineer, but didn't really feel like an engineer. Like, um, but doing it in the context of what Findhorn represented to the world and finding that pathway to what we now call sustainability, but we, I don't even think the word was invented in the early 80s. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it was more like ecological living um, and, and more healthy living, too. So that's really what my main focus has been the whole. Uh, I've now lived here on and off for 27 years. Um, the first stint was around 25 years. And, and we left for a year um, in the, at the end of 2003 to go to Australia, where my wife is from. And then uh, 18 years later, we came back. Um, and really, we came back because of the arson fires. Um, I I had just retired from my sort of day job, which was also <laughs> another eco-village. Um, I spent nine years as a project director for Narara Eco-Village, which was a new project outside Sydney.
0: Is that a very different eco-village?
1: Yes, but very similar too. And what what was also interesting is the being away, leaving Findhorn, which I never thought I would do, and suddenly finding myself in Sydney, a city of five million, um, in a very different, you know, environment. Um, and we decided to work in the corporate world for a while. Um, so we spent probably nine years uh, doing all kinds of trainings, cultural change programs, which were very similar to like Experience Week for bankers. <laughs> um, but we, we morphed that into more sustainability trainings, and we ended up running some very large programs for um, yeah, both nonprofit um, environmental groups, but also for the corporate sector. And one of the largest um, construction companies in Australia did a one-day sustainability training that we, we designed for them. But at the end of that period, I was like, uh, I, I, I left um, the corporate world to come and live at Findhorn and do something alternative. And it was just at that time, I, you know, I was sort of fed up with the corporate world, and
0: so you you were messing eco village roads.
1: Well, that was more where I felt at home, I suppose. And it was right mm-hmm. at that time I sort of got recruited by a lady who wanted to start an Ecovillage. village, and and that was uh, the beginning of my uh, nine years with Narara. Um, And what was wonderful was kind of meeting all these different people, you know, I'd never met them before, but they were my same tribe as people that lived at Findhorn, Uh, committed to the environment, committed to living in a better way, uh, looking for alternatives, looking to demonstrate a different way of living. Um, So very um, apt to be involved with, um, you know, another group, Uh, completely different climate, different situation, but... um, but really exciting to be able to help lead them into uh, doing their, their project there.
0: When you were at Finturn for the, the first phase at Finturn, what kind of projects did you get involved in and what would be your role in these projects mainly?
1: Well, we, um, we started by, uh, we formed a group called the Park Planning Group in the early 80s because we had to have some method for deciding about land use. Uh, you know, if you wanted to have an extension or a shed or a garden center or whatever. Um, so that was our, that became our planning group. And we started dreaming into, well, what would it look like, you know, if we were to replace the caravans with, with permanent houses and, um, how would we develop, um, where would we get our energy? Um, so I was really focalizer of the, of the planetary village or the eco village project. All through those early years, when we we were buying the caravan park and we were paying off a, a big debt that had accumulated during the seventies, so there wasn't any any money for building, but there was plenty of time and energy for dreaming into what it was we were going to do, and that was such a good thing, because I think if we if we just started building, you know, straight away, we would have got it completely wrong. Um, it took quite a few years, probably five or six years, before we got to a place where we'd really understood the land better, where we'd really studied, we'd had help from from um, experts in the field of town planning and landscape design, and and they'd really helped us see the land in a different way um, before we kind of just started helter-skelter building. So we'd also um, researched what kind of building did we want to do and what materials should we use and. We ended up developing our own system called the Breathing Wall using all natural materials that were healthy, that were um, uh, locally sourced and natural without chemicals and treatment and so on. And that took quite a lot of time to do that and worked with a number of partners, um, both here and and abroad. Um, But by about 1990, we were sort of ready to start building. So we thought the best idea was to build it ourselves. So we found a company that that, uh, did trainings in self-build, and we we hired them to come up and help us build the first um, kind of eco-house in Bag End. And they trained 20 of us in this three week course called uh, they were called Constructive Individuals. But really it was eco-building, do it yourself. Uh, So we then had 20 people that had been through that and uh, we decided to run our own building school. So for first few years in the 1990s we had um, two or three building schools a year and that's how the first houses were built we built the guest lodge the youth building um, quite a few of the houses in bag end uh, were all done through building schools and it was a h- heck of a lot of fun so I was sort of the figurehead if you like um, helping to guide that process and and we had many many um, you know dozens of people helped and With different skill sets and you know from architects and and other engineers and planners and and of course builders lots of builders um semi-skilled and skilled um, and totally unskilled as well and in that early phase at one point i think we had something like 25 people in the building department and it was what was happening you know it was it was really exciting um, was was this time. the
0: foundation at the time? or Was this a separate organization, or
1: this was all part of the Fintorn Foundation? And we we formed our own wing with our own bank account called the Development Wing, partly so just to be able to keep the finances separate because we were spending a lot more money than the foundation was, um, well, building houses and you know infrastructure and stuff. So we needed our own bank accounts, and we needed to set it up separately. Um, and that we ran that. Probably for about five years until um, we we sort of ran out of steam in terms of being able to replace caravans because we weren't selling land at the time. And we'd come up with a sort of pseudo legal thing where, where people would loan money if they wanted to build a house. You'd have the right to occupy the house, but you would loan the money to the foundation. So the foundation actually received a loan, which for them was a debt. They also got the asset. They owned the house. But it, it, after we did about fifteen of them, I think uh, we suddenly realized that wasn't going to be the way forward, because if you multiply that by you know three or four, and suddenly the the um, the debt asset ratio on the on the foundation's books looked pretty bad, so the foundations made the decision not to continue with that. But fortunately, the, the field of dreams. Um, sort of arrived on the horizon and uh, we were able to buy the land from the farmer next door, the Bickin family, um, in 1995. Uh, it took us a couple of years to negotiate it, negotiated, but uh, we were able to kind of take all the builders with us and we, we then uh, formed our own building company and um, started building on the field. Um, and that, of course, uh, continued right through the mid 2000s so we had about two uh, about 10 years of um, building on the field and that kind of wound up and and then of course the dunelands uh, came on the scene in the late 90s we had the opportunity to buy the whole Wilkie estate nearly 400 acres huge huge property on the peninsula And that gave us uh, the winds or the magic triangle, we called it at the time, because it it linked up the three main campuses or the three main blocks of land in the foundation, which was Killern, Pine Ridge, and the central area. So this bit in the middle became the magic triangle. Um, So most of the building that happened, once we stopped building on the foundation land, we moved, you know, onto the Field of Dreams, and then we moved into the Duneland area. Um, And we're now, funny enough, coming back to um, the foundation land and looking this year at at developing um, more of Pine Ridge in the central area um, and and really hoping to finish off uh, the land that we've got available for development.
0: The fact that a lot of this work started in the 80s and was really taken off in the 90s Like, to me, that sounds really far ahead of its time, because when you look at a lot of places right now, like Germany, I mean, as far as I understand it, in Germany, they have to build to certain eco-specs, certain sustainable specs. Whereas um, back then, you were doing this when no one was really thinking about it so much. So I wonder if you've seen a ripple effect from Fintorn in particular to the wider worlds with all of this.
1: Yeah, definitely, um, and you're absolutely right. When we started looking at what, what should we build here and how would it really reflect our values, um, you know, and, and really looking at more of the technical stuff. Um, uh, the, um, the tricky part was that the, the normal building standards of the day uh, were the same as Denmark was in
0: 1935.
1: So, oh. <laughs> in the late 80s. Yeah, was, I mean, I think everybody was starting to recognize in the 1980s that we had to do a little bit better with energy efficiency and increasing insulation and that sort of stuff. But um, we, we, especially we tried as a to cold country.
0: It,
1: yeah, we tried to take it to a new level and we did. Um, and uh, the Scottish government recognized that. And they offered us payment to write up what we were doing. And so I ended up writing a book and being paid by the Scottish government to do it in the the early 90s. And we published it called Simply Build Green. And it was all about the kind of technical side of what the building um, that we were doing here and and the types of materials and philosophy behind it and all the, the ecological properties and the insulation standards and so on. So that was really exciting. And 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 there was huge interest um, from all over the country and, and abroad as well. So we were really cutting edge leading the world. Now, since that time, of course, um, the world has caught up and the Scottish standards are very good now. Um, we still want to take it to the next level. I think um, the work that Greenleaf Design and Build have been doing in the last few years that In the Winds, um, uh, they're coming at, up to what we call passive house standards, which again is a German-led uh, initiative. But it's it's really looking at the holistic um, performance of a house, uh, with with um, air tightness and insulation and the healthy side of the materials as well. That's really important, which we also um, were very big on in the early '90s. Um, and a lot more companies are, bu- are designing and building products that meet those sorts of standards now. So we had to look far afield um, to get the types of materials that reflected what we were trying to achieve with no toxic chemicals, without VOCs, um, so that we are creating this healthy indoor climate where we spend a lot of our time. So it's important that the air that we breathe inside houses is as healthy as outdoor air, right? So. Um, many of the materials came from Scandinavia or Germany. Um, We had a German insulation company that told us about um, building biology or uh, biobiology, which is a movement in Germany um, about healthy building products. So we got onto that using uh, different types of wood treatment that were healthy. And so all of that is come a long way and a lot more companies are doing that and eliminating you know toxic glues and things like that that we had to try to avoid and it was difficult you know 30 years ago but now it's much much easier to find um, lots of choices for healthy materials
0: so there is that work back then and then 18 years away so that's a long time away and in that time the world's changed a lot i'm sure and then I'm sure that Fintorn also changed a lot as well. So when you came back to Fintorn Eco Village, what was your impression of where it was at and what was going on? And you can be as candid as you like here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, look, maybe I'll back up just a little bit to say, we, we, um, there were all these other initiatives we did that were also quite groundbreaking. Like we put the first wind turbine up in the northeast of Scotland in 1989 and this the story was we we got inspired in 1985 to do it when a when a swedish inventor came who'd who'd done a little project where he had hydrogen being produced by wind energy that was running cars and heating houses and it, it was like really groundbreaking this is in the mid 80s but during his visit um I was just thinking to myself, well, it's pretty windy here. Where could we do wind turbines? And, you know, had this kind of vision, if you like, um, of seeing a wind farm out to the east of where we are. Um, And, you know, got started talking to friends and and people in the community about it. And everybody got quite excited. But it was it was um, almost four years before we actually got the money together and got the um, wherewithal to kind of make it happen. But um, we had an offer from the windmill company that we'd been talking to, um, and it was it was a special offer because it was the last one of the t- particular size that they had been making, and they were trying to get rid of it before the end of their financial year. It was a Danish company, and and they said, "Well, you can have it for forty percent off, but only if you buy it before the end of the year, which was like four weeks away." So it was, you know, we got together with our little group and said, "Well." Should we try to do it? You know, like, so we literally had weeks and we didn't have all the money all pledged. We had some pledged already because we'd been talking about it. Anyway, it was, it was a great little um, exercise. In three weeks, we raised it was so 75000 I think we needed at the time. And we bought it and it arrived in January of 1989 without any even thinking about planning permission or anything like that. We just hadn't even <laughs> thought about it. <laughs> So,
0: casual the, <laughs> it, it,
1: you know, it would be unheard of now to, you know, to do something that silly. But we didn't even think about it. No, so this is the right thing. And it was sort of felt like a sign from the universe, you know, so and the money all came. So off we went. So, you know, we filled out the forms and applied for planning permission. Six weeks later, we had planning permission. No big deal. Nobody even. Nice. And then uh, in about 10 months, we have a bit of trouble with the Scottish Hydroelectric Board, but uh, we got over that eventually and it went up in 89. And then we also built the living machine. Uh, When we bought the field, there was a moratorium on any new building on the peninsula uh, unless you provided your own sewage treatment. And of course, we had Michael Shaw, who's, uh, you know, a wastewater treatment expert. and and uh, he said oh we can do that so we kind of got planning permission and we got the design, to, and we got a european grant to pay for half of it and um, we built the living machine in 1995 and we could then we then have permission to build houses um so all of those things made for a really interesting story you know between the energy between um, uh, the living machine between the eco houses uh, all of that was really compelling and we we, we ran a, a very large conference in 95 called Villages and Sustainable Communities, Models for 21st Century Living. It's still the largest event we've ever run here because we had over 420 participants and we turned away 350 people who wow. wanted to come, but we didn't have any place to put them and the hall wasn't big enough. Yeah. Um, but even then we had video um, uh, videos of the, of the actual talks for all the community members who wanted to come but couldn't because the hall wasn't big enough to hold them. So we had a, um, a setup at Clooney. This is 1995, almost kind of before the internet. So this is really high-tech stuff in those days. Um, you know, with Zoom now, nobody thinks anything about it and there'll be a thousand people on a Zoom call. But but in those days, it was quite, quite a big thing. So that was really exciting. And that was our first... Um, uh, kind of connection with the United Nations. They, they sent a representative who was a keynote speaker and then we developed the relationship with them over a couple of years and, and sponsored uh, May East to help um, solidify the relationship. And then we got official recognition in the end of the 90s um, as an official NGO. Um, and it was because of the Ecovillage work that was aligning with the sustainable development goals of the UN and kind of demonstrating the kind of projects that they wanted to to see happen. So since that time, we've also been a UN training center here through uh, UNITAR, the um, uh, Seafall Findhorn uh, operated for about 10 years and and then became Seafall Scotland. Um, So a lot of things, you know, we got out on the world stage and we're still looked to to, from many, many um, parts of the world to be the leader in the in the in the move towards you know decarbonization towards sustainable living towards regenerative culture and society that we all know we need to do now um and the most recent thing was all on all the back of that i mean we've also won a couple of un best Par- practice awards for for sustainable settlements through habitat um and but last year when the sixth um assessment of the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. And that's the preeminent body uh, looking at climate change. Several thousand scientists and engineers looking at, um, you know, the state of the planet and what do we need to do in order to avoid catastrophic climate change. We are on the cover. Um, East Winds appearing on the, the cover of the IPCC last year was just amazing it's like being on the cover of the rolling stones you know the uh, the lyrics from the song in the 70s where you you feel like wow so i think the Findhorn Eco village is really um we sort of punch above our weight to use that metaphor probably not the greatest boxing metaphor but we have a lot more influence than the size of our community would normally warrant uh the name is out there the reputation um And in the 18 years I was gone, I can't tell you the number of times people would, you know, they say, oh, you know, where have you lived? And I said, oh, I lived in Findhorn, this community. You lived in Findhorn? Oh, my God. You know, like, it was just incredible. Um, This legendary kind of um, almost mythical uh, reputation that the community has. So anyway, coming back to to your question, what was it like coming back? I, I felt really quite depressed about the state of things. And of course, we'd just been through COVID. Um, we, we managed to leave Australia just at the end of the, um, well, sorry, at the beginning of being able to travel again. You couldn't get out of Australia uh, for the first couple of years of COVID. So um, it was in August of 21, like 2021 that we were able to actually exit and it was the the news about the arson fires that had really. Um, mm-hmm. We just felt like, oh, we should come back and help, you know. And and we were all in, a, my son who's sixteen or he was fourteen at the time, but, um, and and Sam, my wife, we all felt um, we needed a change and it was a new adventure. So, well, let's go back to Vinalopó. We've got a house still there. I, the whiskey barrel house been rented out for all those years. It was funny because I had just a year earlier thinking, "Oh, we're never going to really move back to Findhorn. I should, I should sell the house because it's not fair to keep it." You know, we're not, we're not going to live there again. And then, you know, a year later, we're kind of like on the plane on the way back. So, um, I'm glad we didn't sell it at the time. But
0: um, I'm glad you didn't as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but coming back, um, it was clear, you know that just a a lot of things had changed had been you you might say hard times for lots of people um obviously the foundation was going through big changes and uh, quite a bit of the staff had been made redundant and um and there was no guest programs there was no, no no visitors here um uh and and i think it just looked kind of run down and sad um so it felt like a great opportunity as well to kind of really try to rally the troops and see if we can kind of, let's, yeah, rebuild. Let's expand again and uh, remember the vision that we had, you know, 30, 40 years ago to build the planetary village. And, um, and I think people resonated with that. And, and certainly there were a lot of people very excited. And we formed this thing called um, the Development Committee or DEVCOM. And I was really playing on the DEFCON um, American military because it was a crisis, right? You know, the DEFCON <laughs> five, DEFCON four, and there's a mission 4, to be completed. <laughs> yeah, so we're in a crisis. So let's let's realize we're in a crisis and, and actually act accordingly. And um, but also be re-inspired by the vision of of what this place can offer the world and what the message I think that we have um, that is really important that the world hears. Um, and part of that is not just the ecological living or the kind of co-creation of nature, but it's also the spiritual worldview that I think Findhorn's uniquely, um, our origins, um, you know, have a unique role to play to help people remember that we live in a spiritual cosmology or a spiritual world. In, in a way, I, I feel like the whole eco-village movement, and I think Findhorn is is very uh, key in that, is to help us remember how to become indigenous peoples again. You know, like the indigenous people around the world that haven't been completely decimated, they they have a spiritual worldview. I mean, nature is alive, intelligent, and and we thought that was a new idea in the 1960s. But it's not. It's part of their worldview, the indigenous worldview. And I think, you know, having us rediscover that, re-remember that, um, you know, with Dorothy and Rock and... Peter and Eileen, and, and kind of working in those early years of co-creation with nature, actually, that's just a natural part of life that, that most of humanity has forgotten. But the little pockets of remembrance that the indigenous peoples around the world um, have to you know help remind us. And I think then Finhorn stands for that too. So in a way, I think the Ecovillage movement that's kind of come out of what, what we are and what other um, communities are, um, that are working with this is is that kind of coming back to becoming indigenous again, so that we have respect and understanding and appreciation of the natural world around us. And, and we're not just this, you know, kind of destructive species that is just wreaking havoc on the planet, um, which is what we're doing collectively at the moment
0: love that idea about becoming indigenous again because when we look at the traditions from most places in the planet, from the Shinto in Japan to the Celts in Scotland to Native American traditions to Africa, you know, most people talked about the aliveness of nature and ideas like the co-creation of nature and these oral traditions. So in a way, by like... um. The eco-village movement try to bring humanity forwards is going back in a positive way, in a sense, too. It's respecting tradition and bringing back to life what, what was originally our connection.
1: A lot of the architecture of the traditional buildings is based on the span of a timber that you can find in the forest that's either a tree's fallen down or one that you could cut. Um, and it's it also very quite human scale as well. Uh, so there is a sort of natural um, looking around at what has nature provided you. Well, there's stone and there's uh, timber and there's, um, you know, sand and, uh, you know, other, straw. We've also built in straw bale as well. Uh, so some of those traditions go back, you know, as you say, hundreds of years. And, and um, it's quite nice to think. Uh, well, and funny, funny enough, and this is only people that understand Findor will appreciate this but i myself was conceived in a caravan and my first house on the planet was a eco house that was 450 years old in the county of wiltshire in, in england mm. it was a wattle and daub thatched roof cottage made of completely natural local materials uh, and in a way
0: it's meant to be from the start <laughs>
1: we're we're trying to mimic what was going on 500 years ago you know um, and, and my my parents lived. Were given a, a, a military caravan when they first arrived. I don't really know if I was conceived there, but I'm guessing. <laughs> 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 anyway, um, yeah, but uh, there there's so many examples in it throughout. Uh, well, a lot in England, more than Scotland, I think, because the, the there's a, a longer tradition of building with natural materials in England that that are still there um i mean examples in scotland too but but uh in england the 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 little thatched roof cottages um you know are pretty pretty eco aware and um, you know were cheap to build and they were all local and they were natural they didn't have any toxic glues or uh, you know formaldehyde or or um, nasty paints and solvents and all that kind of stuff that um, some of the modern stuff has so yeah it's sort of it's using the best of our kind of um, modern technology, but also looking to the past, to what's available that nature's provided us that, that doesn't have a lot of processing and is, is it low embodied carbon and all that sort of stuff. Um, Roger Doudna, Dr. Doudna, our resident philosopher, he was looking for a plunge pool back in the, in the mid 80s and um, went up to the Cooperage in Krugeliki was looking kind of for an eight-foot diameter plunge pool to go with the sauna and station house. And they said, oh, we've got these big vats, six-meter diameter vats. And they're taking up space. We're trying to get rid of them. You people at Fintor, you could do something interesting with those. And he started thinking about it and he thought, wow, maybe I could build a house out of one. And wouldn't that be cool? Live in a whiskey barrel. So he kind of you know, got completely possessed by the idea. And started talking to, you know, a bunch of us around the community. And, and we had a whole series of community meetings with, you know, a couple of hundred people, at each one. But in the end, we agreed to go ahead with the Whiskey Barrel Cluster. That was back in 1985. Um, and it, it, you know, so we raised some money. We bought the vats off the the Cooperage and we stored them. And there used to be a barn at Killern and they were in there for years. Um, and, and we... we an architect drew up the plans who happened to be living here for Roger and put them into council. Council approved them, believe it or not, you know, whiskey barrels. And um, and then we started building, you know. So, um, and and that's almost like every project has gone that I've been involved with. We never had the money. Um, we had the inspiration. And often we had to wait for the right time. Like, like the windmill is a good example. We got the inspiration. We all got excited about it. Then we waited four years until that kind of sale price of the wind turbine arrived. And that was the sign it was the right time to go. And then it all came together, buying the field. Uh, The Wilkie estate with 400 acres, I saw in the early 80s that that was like this amazing piece of land that joined up all the other bits of land that we currently owned. But at the time, it was completely not available. So I waited for 17 years until the opportunity arose for us to make an offer on it and the people offered it the owners offered it to us without putting it on the open market because they were inspired by what we were doing here with the eco village and they thought you should have this so they they offered it to us for one hundred eighty thousand, or we agreed on that that was the the price that they they were happy with and we we felt we could try to raise and we, they gave us six months to raise the funds. Uh, we would got to five months and we only had a hundred and, no, we only had 65,000. And I thought, well, we're not gonna make it. Um, but we tried, you know, okay, got a month ago. And then a friend called up and said, oh, I've got someone who's interested. Um, would you have time to talk to her? And I said, yeah, sure, send her over. Um, so we had a cup of tea and I told her, you know, kind of the vision. And she said, well, how much do you need? And I said, well, we still need 115000 and we've only got a month to go. It doesn't look like we're gonna make it. And she said, no, I can do that.
0: So well, that's a good friend to have.
1: <laughs> so, And I'd never met her before, but she got inspired. Oh. And it's like, there's so many manifestation stories about, you know, it was the right time. So we had the money, we set up Dune Unlimited, we made the offer, we transferred the money, we owned the land, boom, done. Um, the windmill was the same, the Field of Dreams was the same. Um, What's also fascinating is we never borrowed any money from the bank. All the money that was raised all came from community members in different forms and shapes. Uh, Some were donations, some were loans. Um, Even the very beginning of the building department back in in the 80s. So we've been talking about the Planetary Village back in, you know, uh, waiting to kind of pay off the debt to have money to be able to build houses. And a woman who'd been a member here for a long time uh, came back for a visit, and she she um, asked to talk to me, and her name was Letty Rowan. And she said, um, look, I've just sold my house, and I've got money. I'd like to help sponsor this planetary village. If you don't get some money, you're never going to do it. So could you use 40,000 pounds? And I thought about it for about, you know, a microsecond, said yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: so she gave it to us, I think, for five years, interest-free as a loan. But we, we went out and bought tools. We bought scaffolding. We bought a truck. Um, we got set up. We bought, you know, equipment for the workshop. Um, it, it helped get us going. And that's exactly what we needed at the time. But again, it was, it was just a manifestation of the universe just going, what do you need? Um, we had another story, the Centini Studios, with these 14 terraced houses on the field. They were the last thing that um, my partner, Simon Richards, and I uh, did as a project on the field of dreams. Um, and we know we needed smaller units. We needed, we needed more affordable units, so we designed these 14 terraces. But it took quite a lot of money to be able to build them. And a guy walked in through the door and said, you know, my father's just died. I really love what you're doing here. Could I loan you 400,000 pounds? And that's, that was our working capital to be able to build the Centini Studios. And we called them Centini because his name was Centini. <laughs> you know what I mean? So sort of like there was just amazing things happened to make all these things possible. And so many, you know, many, many um, hundreds of people that worked on it, but many people played critical roles. And, you know, it was really, you feel like there's, it's the universe is supporting us going forward. Um, The most recent example happened last year when Killern House was on the market, which of course had been owned for many decades by the foundation, and the last financial crisis 20 years ago, or or the one that happened 20 years ago, they sold the house to a member, um, Marion Lee, who, who ran Findhorn Flower Essences. And she ran her business from there, raised her family, and then tragically died um, a few years back. And so the house was on the market um, and it was gonna go, you know, it was gonna be gone. And, and there were lots of, there was lots of interest in it. So I kind of felt a tap on the shoulder to say, it's too important. This is right in the middle of the community. It's right in the middle of Killern Gardens. It's too important to just let it go to some random stranger. Um, So I started asking around and people got excited. And um, we put an offer in in February. We didn't get it, which was a shock because because we manifested the money. Um, And that, again, was one of those stories where we had two hours to go before the the, uh, bids were due. And we were still like quite a bit short, I think. Almost two hundred thousand short, and uh, someone rang up, who'd already pledged some money, and said, "Well, how much do you need?" And I said, "Oh, another hundred and thirty thousand or something," and they said, "Yeah, we can do that." So we put the offer, and then didn't get it, and and it was devastating, and I was like completely shocked. What? This is one of the best manifestations ever, but uh, a few people rang me up to say, "Don't, don't be disheartened, it's going to come back." I said, yeah, right. Anyway, 2 months later the agent calls up and says, "Oh, the sale's fallen through. Do you want to make an offer?" So we we did. And and then the the warm-up round we had 23 people. The final round we had 49 investors who raised we raised 820,000 in the first 3 weeks of May. And we bought it for 700,000, but we needed extra money for taxes and other you know, other stuff and some working capital. So but again, that was just like amazing. I, I was totally shocked that there's that many people would put that much money in, and we've secured it. And now we have two years to figure out what to do with it. <laughs> but never mind. You know, it's like I think there's um, there's magic in the field uh, when when a project or a, you know an idea is ripe, um, and if you're listening and paying attention, the universe responds. And so, you know, whether it's the dozens of people that I've seen build our dream house, whether it's in the field or in, in the winds or, or on the foundation land um, where they didn't have the money or they didn't, you know, it didn't seem to be possible and yet they knew this was the right thing for them. And the money came and, and the project happened. Um,
0: Something else has felt very timely recently. Um, so with you being back, you've been leading the Just Transition Fund So that's money coming from the Scottish government. And as far as I understand, you're just finishing the first round of funding now. Can you tell us a bit about what the Just Transition Fund is and how important you think it is?
1: Yeah, look, that's a really exciting story as well. Um, And what the Just Transition Fund is about is transitioning from fossil fuel to renewables, and a bright green future. And the Scottish government's recognizing that there's a huge number of people that have been employed in the fossil fuel industry, particularly in Aberdeenshire, um, where the North Sea gas was um, discovered, North Sea oil, um, in the the 1970s, and um, still is going on, but is winding down. And so what's going to happen to those people that, you know, their, their livelihoods are all tied up with fossil fuels. But the recognition, well, well firstly, the, the oil and gas is running out, but also we can't continue to use oil and gas. How do we transition in a just and fair way into a renewable future? So they've created a fund of um, it's 50 million pounds a year for 10 years. So half a billion pounds to help transition the people in Aberdeenshire and Moray into uh, more sustainable livelihoods. So um, it was Roger Doudna, Dr. Doudna, and um, my wife Sam and Michael heard about a talk that was going on in Elgin last July. And it was about some grant funding. They didn't know much more about it. So they went along to the talk and they heard about the Just Transition Fund. And it was uh, being talked about by Richard Lockhead, the minister, um, our local MP, but also the the Scottish minister in charge of the portfolio. And at the end of the talk, um, they went up to him and just were chatting about the Ecovillage, which he knew all about, of course. And they said, well, do you think we should apply? And he said, yes, absolutely. But you have to put your application in by next Friday. It was like literally a week away or eight days or something. God. So we all, you know, they came back and then rallied a bunch of us and, and you know, managed to put together um, a proposal to go in for funding. And we thought it would really just be um, an expression of interest and that they'd maybe come back and ask us questions or maybe knock some of the things away. But they didn't. Um, at the beginning of September, we heard, yeah, you've been successful. And then we were like, well, well, how successful? Did we get everything? And they wouldn't tell us because the queen died. Um, and they waited two months uh, before. They didn't want any kind of good news going out while, while we're in the mourning period and all that. But by the end of um, October, we sort of knew we'd got the whole thing, everything we'd asked for, 227,000 for four projects um, to expand our, our food production, organic food production, um, to do an ambient loop heating district heating scheme using the um, water from aquifer. So ambient water at sort of 10 degrees to get rid of all the fossil fuel that we've got in the park, all of the LPG, and there's even some oil burners that are still here, um, and replace them with heat pumps that were uh, using ground-sourced uh, water, which are much more efficient than air-sourced heat pumps. Um, and then increasing our microgrid, because there's a lot of elec- electric load from the new heat pumps that would be going onto the grid. So how do we strengthen that? And then how do we also generate more electricity to provide for that extra load? And, and there's also extra load from more houses that we want to build um, and also electric car charging. Um, so the transition away from fossil fuel cars to electric vehicles, we don't have any charge points <laughs> Or well, we have very few. We've got a couple from Car Share, so all of that was about how do we fix the microgrid and and make sure that's um, really up to speed, and that we're able to manage it in a really smart way using the best of uh, AI and computer technology. Um, and then the third project was was looking at more affordable forms of housing, and we had. Um, put a grant proposal in to look at building what they call nature houses, which is building um, livable units inside a big greenhouse. And so we put in for that, that was our fourth project. So all those four projects got fully funded um, and we had 227,000 that we had to spend between uh, the beginning uh, week of November and the end of March. And we have managed to do it. Um, we have employed something like over sixty people in the process, and Callum was
0: yeah myself included yeah <laughs> resident photographer
1: <laughs> yeah and 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 part of that part of the work you did was was documenting in, in visual form all these old plans that had got lost and were stuffed away in different places and and then digitizing a lot of the information that was really important to be saved and collected and brought forward. Um, but yeah, many many different things. Looking at the electric vehicles, looking at um, the smart grid technology, looking at maybe putting up a fourth wind turbine to to increase the renewable energy, energy generation that we've got. Looking at a solar farm uh, that AES might be able to build for us. Our own solar company, you know, founded in the late '70s, still going strong. Um, yeah, maybe some battery storage uh, where we can uh, avoid exporting when we've got extra energy but we're not using it. Um, yeah, a lot of really interesting stuff. And and I feel and I think those of us who worked on a project um, that this is the kind of thing that the whole world needs to go towards. And this is an opportunity to us, like we had thirty years ago with the breathing wall and the um, living machine and the wind turbine. That we can actually then go back to that leadership position um, of showing the world how you can do this smart technology and and uh, and be a hundred percent decarbonized. And that uh, that's the other project that's been going on this year, the Carbon Neutral 2030, that we 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 ran it through um, the Park Eco Village Trust, um, and they got a lottery funded grant to help look at well how could we do that? You know, measuring our carbon footprint that we've done very, very um, extensively over the last five, six years. Um, but how could we then reduce it to nothing by 2030? Um, and this Just Transition Fund is suddenly give us, given us the, the projects um, to show us the technology that we need to um, embody to, to be able to actually reach the goal. So it's a pretty exciting moment. Um, and it is completely possible. And and we could be again showing the world um, how you can actually do this.
0: Mm, to be well ahead of the curve again.
1: Yeah, this, mm. even looking at the ambient loop, we've we've employed um, through the grant funding, we've been able to employ some really great experts um, in this in these fields of smart grid technology. Um, we've got the University of Strathclyde helping us to do computer modeling of our grid. To make sure that we can manage it and what parts of the grid might we need to upgrade or uh, put a battery store in or do, you know, do do different kinds of um, adaptations in order to do this. Um, But we would be the first really completely 100% decarbonized community in the UK, maybe even in Europe. I'm not sure, but um, so that that kind of inspiration and excitement is what's been behind the Just Transition Fund and um and it's not just about making Findhorn nice and carbon neutral and comfortable for all the so we can all kind of you know be proud of ourselves but but it's actually showing other communities how they can do the same thing
0: is it's where the world has to go
1: exactly it's where the world has to go, and that's what we're trying to show the you know what we can do if we can do it with our kind of like haphazard sort of pretty unorganized in some ways, um, community, uh, if we can do it, then anybody can do it.
0: You think this is a really great example of technology bringing us into greater harmony with nature rather than destroying nature. And of course, I mean, even in the mainstream education system in Scotland and other places, we're being told about the danger that we're in as a species and you know, for you to have been involved in all of this for many decades, I feel that you must have real drive, real passion about the bigger picture of where Fintorn connects into all of this. And FinTorn's going in a really good direction. But in the bigger picture, so you've been to many villages around the planet. You've been connected to these places. You've seen the village movement. Do you feel that humanity will move closer to eco-village-style living? Do you think that we'll get there to where we have to go as a species?
1: Well, I, you know, on one level, all bets are off. <laughs> but I, I'm i pretty much an optimist. Um, and I think very early on, in the early days of Fendorn, there was lots of channelings that people were doing, and, and David Spangler was... Uh, channeling a, a a being he called limitless love and truth. And, and, and it really impressed me. I heard some of the original tapes, you know, with, with him uh, doing this channeling. Uh, but one of the things that struck me was uh, the notion that really put your energy into building the new. Don't try to fix the old or to fight against the old or to um, try to, you know, like if you think of the metaphor of a huge oil tanker or whatever or a huge um juggernaut that's headed in a certain direction the amount of energy it takes to try to change the direction of thing for me it, it made a lot more sense to know. no i want to i want to actually build the new stuff and show that you can do it and by demonstration get people excited about what's possible rather than um protesting against you know the environmental destruction and people have to do that I just knew for myself that wasn't where my energy was. You know, that wasn't my inspiration. It was more like, no, I want to see how this new stuff can work and see if we can build Mm. it, see if we can make it happen. You know, like, um, can we really live in ecological whiskey barrels? Um, And yes, we can, you know. And and if you don't believe me, we'll come and look.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm seeing it right now with my own very eyes and look very cozy.
1: Exactly. And I think... I think that uh, there was another quote by Albert Schweitzer uh, uh, is attributed to him anyway. This: there's, there's three ways to get people to change. The first is by demonstration. The second is by demonstration. And the third <laughs> is by demonstration. Yeah, you know, like it. And I think if you can mm, show people um, that it's possible, and also that actually it's really fun, um, it's playful, it's exciting, it's. Um, it's innovative, it, it's uh, imaginative, like it engages with, with a different part of ourselves um, that becomes really compelling uh, doing it that way rather than, yeah, the the kind of fighting against the old or, you know, against the corporate world or whatever. And actually you just show them it's, there's, a, there's a really interesting, better way. And, and I find, you know, my own experience of the quality of life of living in Fyndor, living in an eco-village, living at Narara. It's like you have a higher quality of life. You don't need as much money. You don't have to have the material possessions. You've got a comfortable lifestyle. You've got friends and social fabric and people and community. You feel like you belong. You feel like you're doing something for the planet, not just for me. And I feel better about myself and about what I'm doing if I feel like it's not just for me and for my immediate family. That I'm actually contributing something to helping the world see that there could be a better way to live. Um, I mean, just the, the number of amazing events that we've had in the Universal Hall over the years. You know that, um, and and also community meetings and community events and community initiatives that, where you work with other people and you you feel like you're part of something bigger. I mean, that social spiritual side, is what in in some ways is more. Um, compelling in terms of, uh, of of enjoyment of life and, and fulfillment you might say than having a nice house or a nice car or a good job or making lots of money or having all the mod cons um you know it, it's like you, you need a physical place to live you need to have adequate housing and, and hopefully comfortable and warm and and ecological um, but it, it, that's not enough by itself. You know, you have to have more of that. Uh, you have to have the social infrastructure, the, the the culture, the community, the sense of belonging and purpose. Um, and I suppose purpose is much more about the spiritual dimensions. And I, I haven't mentioned that, but that model that we came up with in the 1980s when we didn't have any money to build. So we were kind of dreaming into, well, what is it that this is about? What is a, a planetary village or an eco-village? And we came up with this four quadrants. um, And we've got a lovely diagram that a young uh, architecture student illustrated for us. But it was really um, the ecological, of course, really important quadrant, which is, you know, housing, food, shelter, water, uh, energy, um, all of the kind of physical needs. But um, we also need an economic quadrant. So how do we support ourselves? What kind of businesses do we have? What kind of livelihoods do we create that are also, you know, in the life enhancing co-creation with nature model? Um, And then the third quadrant is um, the community side of it, the the, um, social infrastructure, the cultural infrastructure, the sense of belonging and feeling a part of something bigger than yourself. And the fourth quadrant, we call it spiritual sustainability, which is really about what nurtures your spirit. for some people, that might be religious. Uh, it, it might be walking in nature, or it might be volunteering. It might be helping other people in some way.
0: Could you kind of summarize what's what's the if someone wants to do this sort of thing, you know, make all these incredible things happen? What's what's the process? What's kind of try and summarize mm-hmm. this this ability to manifest things?
1: Well, it, it kind of puts me in mind of us of of what. I had to go through when I first got here. And uh, when you joined the community in the late 70s, early 80s, you went through they called what was called orientation. It really should have been called disorientation because at the end of it, it was usually an eight or 10-week program. You felt more disoriented than you did when you started. But I, I think looking at that, it was much more about undoing your worldview almost like a rewiring process where you have to pull the, wire, the old wires out in order to rewire you into a new way of seeing or a new way of thinking. Um, so that kind of rewiring process for me, you know, it lasted, started in orientation and it lasted for a couple of years. So during that time, I, I worked in a service department, including maintenance in the dining room and the garden and, um, and eventually transport. But um, I had a dream during that time. I really wanted to go work on the hall. So, I'm trained as an engineer, but I love building. And I, I run, the hall was being finished. It was still unfinished at the time. And there was lots of you kind know, of male testosterone energy, and it seemed like a, a good place to be. Um, but in, uh, in, in the middle of that kind of desire, I was over at Clooney, but um, and not able to work in the hall. I was, you know, had my interview, and I was put in Clooney maintenance. Um, so, I was trying to do my service bit, but I still had this desire. Anyway, I had this dream one night and I was standing in in front of reception at Kaluni and there was a woman at the at the desk and um, she said, oh, John, come here, I have something to tell you. So I walked over and she said, now, before you work on construction, you have to work on reception. So I worked on that dream and, you know, the metaphor was clear that in order to build, to be to go into construction, you really have to be receptive and if you think about the archetypes that the three founders represent, the two women being the receptive, uh, getting the guidance, tuning in, finding out what they needed to do, Dorothy getting instructions about the garden, Eileen getting instructions about how to live um, and center yourself on God's will. And then Peter was the masculine force of construction who who was incredibly obedient to the guidance. And so they would get the guidance Peter would carry it out so that kind of be receptive learn how to tune into what the universe is asking you know what what you're where you're being guided and the timing of that and the and the ability to then manifest it through the constructive you know which is in a lot of ways it's the positive masculine not the negative masculine that's destructive but the positive masculine that which can manifest which can build which creates um but being guided by that kind of receptive feminine the positive feminine so for me that's a that was a huge metaphor into how to really listen deeply and then know when to act and not kind of just rush out and you know grab your hammer and nails and start you know <laughs> pounding uh, radically and, but i think that's been really important for me to know how to um know when to do things and to be patient. And then also recognize when the universe is saying, okay, now. Now is the time for the windmill. Now is the time for the Field of Dreams. Now is the time for the Wilkie Estate. Now is the time for Killern House. Um, and even now is the time for the sanctuary. You know, that we've manifested an amazing design that came out of a, a really collective process, extensive community uh, consultation, and then nine designers coming together for a weekend, bringing that form that was ready to be manifested into drawings and plans, and then went to council, and and now we've manifested the money, and we're ready to start building. So, just you know, being patient, but also really focusing on listening, and um, that you know, the, very much about the uh, going within and um, being guided by that, which is you know what we're supposed to be all about here.
0: I think that's a really beautiful note to end on, and that's going to help me with my manifestations and I'm sure of our listeners as well. So thanks a lot, John. Uh, This has been our barrel, our Finthorn barrel.
1: Yeah, well, you're in a real barrel today.
0: Yeah, the barrel in the barrel today.